in our last episode. On April 19, 1928, the last public hanging in Illinois took place, as Charlie Berger was executed for his crimes. After his death, the trial of the accused murderers of Ethel Price began, with all defendants pleading guilty. A Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 32, Part 2 Listening to the gruesome tale of Lori Price's murder, Arlie O. Boswell had reason to believe that Newman was lying. Another of the defendants, one he had come to trust, had given him a far different account. As Boswell recalled in my interview, They brought him out to the barbecue stand and old Slim was sitting on the table. Didn't have his putties on. They brought him out too quick. And he was swinging his legs. They were talking to him, and he was denying it, and Charlie more or less appeared to be in favor of Slim. Just about that time, two other guys walked in and Lori said, Where's Ethel? They said, Why? This was when the firecrackers started. Newman said, You lying son of a bitch. You'll be where she is in a very few minutes. Lori threw his hand up and said, You mean something's happened to Ethel? Newman said, Yes, the same goddamn thing that has happened to you. And bingo! Price took it right in the guts. Well, at that, Berger didn't have a gun. He grabbed a gun from one of the boys there, and he started for Newman. Berger was grabbed, and Newman was grabbed, and there was quite a little wrestle around there. And when it was over, Berger said, Look at what you've done now, you son of a bitch. I should have killed you long ago. Art said, Yes, I know. But you were afraid to kill me. You know I had too much on you. Well, Charlie kind of cooled off and said, We've got to get rid of this right now. Somebody comes in here and we're in one hell of a shape. And they began to scurry around, and they put Price in the car and they drove off. One of those accompanying Mrs. Price had assumed both parties would meet at the mine. In the presence of his wife, Slim, Lori, would be threatened, maybe slapped around a little. Perhaps even Ethel Price would be threatened to further impress upon her husband the dire consequences of squealing to the authorities. When they arrived at that desolate spot, this Burger gang member was surprised to discover that Slim and the others were nowhere to be found. When Mrs. Price complained of the cold, he put his coat around her shoulders. Still, Newman's car had not arrived. Even Ethel Price was apparently unaware that she was to be murdered that night. The truth became apparent, however, when Ritter ordered one of the men to kill her. Rum runner and associate of thugs though he was, the young man in question was above killing an innocent woman, and he said so in the most scathing terms. Ritter was stunned. The less squeamish Ernest Blue, along with Ritter, fired the fatal shots, dropped their victim into the darkness, then covered her with debris. Here the informant's account differs sharply, both from Newman's version and the one told by Boswell. They were driving back to Harrisburg, he says, and were about two miles east of Shady Rest when Newman's car passed them going west. Badly shaken but otherwise unharmed, Slim was on his way home. Both automobiles pulled to a stop. Berger got out of the car, walked over, and looked in the window of the other car. Where's Mrs. Price? 
We killed her and threw her down a mine shaft. Ritter replied. You're nuts, Berger said. He thought a moment. Turn around. We've got to go back. We've got to get rid of Slim now. Both cars were driven back to the barbecue stand. Because he had remained in the car, the informants did not see the subsequent shooting of Price inside the building. On the way back to Harrisburg from Washington County, Berger admitted he had made a lot of mistakes in his life, but that this is the worst. In that dark moment, he also observed, prophetically for him at least, that Art Newman and Connie Ritter were going to get us all hung. On January 8th, Freddie Wooten took the stand. Although for the most part his testimony matched Newman's, there were important differences. To his knowledge, Boswell had not informed Berger that Price had written letters to C.E. Hollis, the president of the Pocahontas Bank. As best he could recall, the man who had allegedly written those letters was someone named Newell. Nor did he remember Boswell being at the County Line Roadhouse the night of April 12, 1926, as Newman had previously stated. While admitting he was ignorant of many details to which Newman and others were privy, Wooten said he had no personal knowledge of Boswell's participation in Burger Gang activities. As a matter of fact, he hardly knew the former state's attorney at all. Following the testimony of Riley Simmons, Roy Browning recommended that the court sentence the defendants to life imprisonment for the murder of Ethel Price, 57 years for conspiracy to murder Ethel Price, and 57 years for conspiracy to murder Lori Price. Browning hastened to add that he was reserving the Lori Price murder case as a sort of lever to use against the defendants if they did not fully testify in clearing up the unsolved crimes remaining. He could always reinstate it and ask for the death penalty. If he had asked for the death penalty in the present case and been successful, there would be no one to use as witnesses against Ritter and Blue if ever they were apprehended. To blunt the criticism sure to come his way for not seeking the ultimate penalty, he pointed out that none of the defendants could be released from the penitentiary in less than 58 years. Although he believed the defendants deserved to hang, Judge D.T. Hartwell agreed with the recommendations of the state's attorney, but for reflection, and the good of your consciences, if you have any, he ruled that on each anniversary of the Price murders, the men were to be placed in solitary confinement for five days. Simmons was returned to Leavenworth, where he was serving a sentence for counterfeiting. Newman and Wooten were taken to Greenville in Bond County, where they pleaded guilty to robbing the Bond County National Bank at Pocahontas. The indeterminate sentences meted out to them by the judge merited little space in most Illinois newspapers. Chapter 33 The Mystery of the Destruction of Shady Rest Another trial was covered at length by the press. When the United States District Court convened in the Federal Building in East St. Louis on January 21, 1929, those under indictment for conspiring with gangsters to violate the Volstead Act included former Williamson County Coroner George Bell, former Marion Police Chief Thomas Boyd, former Johnston City Police Chief Hezzy Byrne, and a bootlegger from Culp, one Pete Salmo. However, most of the attention was focused on the fifth defendant, former Williamson County State's Attorney Arlie O. Boswell. Listening to the charges leveled against him, Boswell could only reflect on the irony of it all. Only a few months earlier, he had been mentioned as a possible choice for District Attorney of Eastern Illinois. Now, 
He chewed his cigar and listened, as District Attorney Harold G. Baker called witness after witness. Noting Boswell's usually buoyant mood during the proceedings, reporters took delight in such witticisms as, I'm as much at home at a hanging as at a ballroom. That little jewel got wide circulation. Among the 63 testifying for the prosecution was that veteran songbird Art Newman. Both he and Connie Ritter were at one time or another collectors for Boswell, he said. Their predecessor had been Charles Chink Schaefer, who had since disappeared. Wanted for the murder of Ezra Fowler at Halfway in July of 1923, Schaefer was finally located in Ely, Nevada on October 3, 1929. The elusive Chink, after being released on bond and awaiting extradition, once again vanished. He was a close friend of Judge Hartwell, who more than once urged Boswell not to prosecute Chink, despite the murder charge lodged against him. Fastidious, personable, in all a most unlikely gunman, Schaefer avoided recapture and, presumably, remained a free man for the rest of his life. Meeting with gang members on April 12, 1926, at the County Line Roadhouse north of Johnston City, Boswell had ordered them to shoot the hell out of Heron the next day, Newman said, repeating the story he had told at his own trial two weeks earlier. Again he told of the chiding Boswell gave him and the others for killing Harlan Ford instead of his brother John. Attorney Harold Baker called John Ford to the stand. The one-time Klan leader said he had warned the state's attorney the day before the riot that trouble was imminent and that he should call out the militia. Not only was no action taken, but Boswell was out of the county on election day, Ford said. When he returned that night, six people were dead, among them Harland Ford. After the memory of the shooting faded away, John Ford compiled a list of 484 witnesses and turned the list over to Assistant State's Attorney C. Ray Smith. The list disappeared, he continued, but luckily he kept a carbon copy. Upon learning this copy was in Ford's lockbox in Heron, Judge Walter G. Lindley ordered the witness to return to Heron, get the list, and return to East St. Louis the following morning. Following John Ford's revelation, there was speculation that the election riots of 1926 would be investigated by a federal grand jury, but that did not occur. No stranger to the witness stand, Harvey Dungey recalled how Boswell, Berger, and Newman had threatened him with death if he did not testify against the Sheltons at the trial in Quincy. Not one to bear a grudge, however, the witness found himself one of a joy-riding threesome on the day Joe Adams was shot, the other passengers being Berger and Boswell. Later, when questioned about the incident, Boswell said he and Maurice Potter were having supper in the BBT room when Berger swaggered in, bearing the intriguing information that someone had been killed in West City. Following the meal, Boswell, accompanied by Berger, went to his office to place a phone call to Sheriff Pritchard. Oren Coleman testified that the gangsters often visited Boswell in his office, and that bootleggers were customarily fined on one count while the other counts against them were dismissed. For these reasons, he had failed to support Boswell in the campaign, something that rankled the man now on trial. Perhaps the single most damaging piece of evidence was offered by a banker who said that during his four-year term of office, Boswell had deposited $87,000. In reply, the former state's attorney said that the sum consisted of fines, fees, and forfeitures he had collected, plus salary and business profits. 
In other words, the county's money and his own money were commingled in the same account. Because he had the receipts showing which was which, he had given the matter little thought. So little, in fact, that he forgot to inform the banker. That, he admits, was a very foolish mistake. The jury apparently thought it went farther than that, because a week later, Boswell was fined $5,000 and sentenced to two years in prison. On April 11, 1930, while in the federal penitentiary at Alderson, West Virginia, after being moved from Leavenworth for his own protection, Boswell was disbarred. With the exception of Boyd, all those tried were found guilty. Four members of that jury were among those impaneled to hear similar charges lodged against other Williamson County officials a few days later, the most important being Heron Mayor Marshall McCormick, the man who, perhaps more than any other, was responsible for getting the Sheltons out of Heron. Largely on the testimony of the water superintendent who turned state's evidence, the mayor, his brother Elmer, and police chief John Stamm were found guilty on February 15th of conspiring with bootleggers to violate liquor laws. A week later, they were sentenced to Leavenworth. The mayor, who received the stiffest sentence of two years in prison and a fine of $3,000, had not helped his cause by admitting he once gave an elaborate corkscrew to a group of salesmen attending a convention in his city, although he repeatedly denied telling the fun lovers that his town was wide open as the government charged. Like Boswell, McCormick was a one-time ally of S. Glenn Young, the man hired to save Williamson County from the law violators. Despite the trials and the various sentences handed down, several mysteries remained. Some would never be solved. One of the most intriguing concerned the destruction of Shady Rest. What really happened? At first, a story made the rounds that the Sheltons had put a tank on the back of a truck, filled the tank with gasoline, and parked the truck in the woods so that the gasoline ran down a convenient ditch toward the cabin. When the cabin's perimeter was sufficiently soaked, a tossed match made ashes of Berger's dream. Those who fled the inferno were systematically machine-gunned, their bodies tossed into the flames. One who saw the gangster take Price into the barbecue stand the night of the killing distinctly recalls hearing Berger say he wanted to show Lori the damage he had done. Price, of course, protested his innocence. The kidnappings and murders, coming as they did shortly after the destruction of Shady Rest, led many to believe that the patrolman did indeed play a role in the affair. If he did, and there is no evidence of it, it was only at the prompting of Berger and certain of his gang. Harry Thomason was right in believing Berger himself was responsible for the death of his brother Elmo and the others. But why and how did he do it? With the possible exception of Mrs. George, all those killed were burdened with an excess of information about the gang and its activities. Lena George, they had reason to believe, had learned from Steve too much for her good, and for their peace of mind. The other three had either participated in or witnessed murders. According to the testimony of Euro Gowan at the Warsham trial, Steve George and Ward Casey Jones machine gunned to death Lyle Shag Warsham. George and Harvey Dungey carried the body into the farmhouse, while Berger poured the gasoline. Testifying at the same trial, Clarence Roan said that George poured the gasoline around the house and that Berger lit the match. Steve George and another man were convicted of robbing Hosea Parks' store at Rudmont. The case went to the Illinois Supreme Court, but on October 28, 1926, that august body upheld the ruling of the lower court. 
Out on bail, compliments of Charlie Berger, this murderous fellow with the solid gold teeth would soon have to begin serving his prison term. Not particularly bright, Steve George would easily be induced to tell inquiring authorities anything they wanted to know, or so Berger felt. He did not intend to let his henchmen serve one day behind bars. According to the testimony of Rado Milich, Bert Owens witnessed the killing of Ward Casey Jones. Milich further testified that Owens and Jones were planning to kill him at the time, but when the shooting began, Owens fled. According to the testimony of Ural Gowan, Owens was present when Warsham was killed. It should be pointed out that his presence was not confirmed by Clarence Roan. It is known that Owens was afraid for his life. Once in Harrisburg, the young man panicked when a relative entered his room unannounced. For Elmo Thomason, it was more than enough that he had helped kill Joe Adams. The Shelton's attempt to bomb the place from the air, clever as it was unsuccessful, would, Berger felt, draw the blame to them once the cabin was destroyed. The bodies found within would be four more casualties of the gang war, four more notches in the guns of his enemies. With the press clamoring daily for his arrest in the Adams killing, Berger thought it expedient to eliminate a few potential witnesses and let the Sheltons take the blame. How was the deed accomplished? On that bone-chilling morning of January 9th, 1927, one of Berger's men drove his car a short distance from the cabin. He fully intended to do some rabbit hunting, but discovered his car wasn't running right. Despite the bitter cold, he crawled under it to see what might be the problem, and while tinkering out of sight, he heard another car pull in. Out stepped two boys carrying what appeared to be two five-gallon cans of gasoline. From his vantage point beneath the automobile, the amateur mechanic heard Connie Ritter tell the boys to tote the cans to the basement. Then he heard Ritter say something that further chilled his bones. Under the pretense that Steve had been wounded in a robbery, Mrs. George was to be spirited from Harrisburg to Shady Rest that night. The rest could be figured out easily enough. The man under the car and Steve had been good friends. In fact, his own connection with the Burger Gang had evolved from associating with the accomplished gunman, dedicated dope pusher, and sometime coal miner. Sudden death either from the bullets of rival gangsters or at the hands of supposed friends, was a fact of life and death for men of their caliber. So said another old-timer, Charles Blackie Harris, during an interview at the Minimum Security Prison at Vienna, Illinois. Remember, said that most grandfatherly of convicts, your best friend today can be your worst enemy tomorrow. Next time. I don't think anybody ever heard me make the statement that I would kill him. But, if that guy Newman were to walk in this door right now, one or the other of us would be killed. Oh.